Welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right, well, welcome back uh, to the pod of our New Testament overview, and we are going to be getting into the Gospel of Mark, the good news from Mark today. And uh, this is probably the book that we've been through the most. What did we we did the whole season, right? Our first season, season one. I think we did it in twenty some odd episodes. That's with, that was with a couple of after shows that looked at big pictures in the Gospel of Mark. But this, to me, um, I believe all the Gospels are accessible. But for someone that's wanting to get into learning who Jesus is for the first time, I think this is one of the easier books to jump into to just get a flyover of what Jesus did, the kind of teaching that he had, the kind of things he expected of people and from us, but also understanding the greatness and the authority that he had while he was on the earth. And it's only 16 chapters long, um, so it's the shortest of the Gospels. And it really is a concise overview of all that Jesus did and taught in his three-year ministry. Um, I would say probably the the fact about the Gospel of Mark that needs to be noted from the beginning is his use of the word immediately. And uh, especially if you're using some of the more literal translations, um, the NIV kind of loses this, but the New American Standard, the ESV, the New King James Version, uh, they reflect this well in that Mark uses the word immediately 41 different times in his Gospel, which is like way more than the other Gospel accounts. He's always in a hurry. Right. And I think that's the idea because his Gospel doesn't even mention the birth of Jesus like Luke and Matthew's gospel does, but it just gets right into who Jesus is and who John the Baptist is. So there's a sense of urgency that comes with the gospel of Mark. Yeah, and last week we were looking at the gospel of Matthew, which is very clearly primarily to a Jewish audience. He's always quoting the Old Testament, saying this happened to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Uh, Mark, on the other hand, doesn't do that as much. He certainly has his fair share of Old Testament quotations because Jesus is regularly quoting the Old Testament. But um, it's also interesting that Mark, there's a few times where he will explain some of the Jewish customs, almost like, oh, if you didn't know, like this is one of the things that the Jews do. Uh, Mark 7 verse 4 is, or verses 3 and 4 is one example of that, where there's like this parentheses uh, statement where he says, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. There are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. That's just one example of Mark kind of, hey, by the way, if you're unaware of the Jewish customs, uh, here's the thing. So it's more likely that Mark may be written to more of a, a Greek audience, more of a Roman audience. Um, so that's a, a possibility. It doesn't make a huge difference in how we read it, but sometimes you just get those little clues uh, in the text as to who is writing, who's being written to originally. Yeah, and you almost you will also see in Mark's Gospel some Aramaic being explained as well, um, which is pretty cool considering who the audience likely is. And unlike the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, to the best of our knowledge, this is from some secular history and from church history, Mark is the John Mark that we read about like in Acts chapter 12 and um, Acts chapter 15 and some of those other places that was likely a young man when Jesus was around, but we really see him more on the scene in the book of Acts. And traditionally, this is the Mark 
who wrote this gospel. And what's different from the Gospel of Matthew with that, obviously, Matthew was one of the 12 apostles. Mark was not. And so Mark is likely relying on eyewitnesses, different people who would have encountered Jesus. Um, We know that Mark would have had some kind of relationship with Peter, so it's possible that some of these same stories we read in the Gospel of Mark were influenced or told to Mark by the Apostle Peter. But more than any of that, what really matters is this book is inspired. Um, right. the, the Spirit is the one that gave Mark the wisdom here to write these things down in the way that he did. Yeah. And I don't want to overlook that. Yeah, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about the uh, balance there next week when we get to Luke. Because Luke is very explicit and he says, listen, I, I've taken the time to talk to the eyewitnesses and compose an orderly account for you, Theophilus. And so as you read the Bible, there is... Uh, I won't even say attention. There's a harmony between the divine authorship of this book. The spirit is breathing the words that we need to hear, and they're being recorded. But at the same time, God is doing that through human authors who sometimes use normal research methods to get the information. And I think God is still guiding that process, helping that process. Um, And so I think it's not unlikely that Mark could have talked to Peter and gotten some of those things, or that Luke talked to Mary and she told him some of the stories that he re- records by the Spirit in you know Luke chapter one and two, especially. Um, so all that to say, uh, Mark is uh, not present for a lot of this. He might be referenced in chapter fifteen, verses fifty-one and fifty-two, where there's a young man who runs away along with the disciples in the garden um, and is left, you know naked. Uh, it's kind of a bizarre little passage. It's only in Mark. Um, some people think that that's Mark himself. Again, that's speculation. But it's just interesting to try to picture, okay, who was this man? How did this gospel come to be? Um, and ultimately, though, those things are all secondary to the content of the book. And so we can just go ahead and hop in uh, to the gospel of Mark itself. Yep. So uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 1 begins with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So Mark's gospel begins by telling us up front who the story is about. It's all about Jesus Christ the Son of God. And there's a lot to unpack in that first verse. Uh, The name Jesus means salvation is from the Lord. Christ is the idea of the anointed one, the kingship, Messiah. And then he's the Son of God. He comes in the likeness of God the Father. And so from the beginning, you understand what Mark is trying to tell us about Jesus. And the stories that are going to follow in the Gospel of Mark will continue to show us why Jesus lives up to this namesake of Christ, Son of God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, this whole first half of chapter 1, roughly from verses 1 to 20, uh, give us just an introduction to who Jesus is. Um, And again, Mark is very concise here. We just get a few verses about his baptism, two verses about his temptation, two verses about his first ministry, and then a little story about the first disciples being called But all of this is giving us a picture, I mean, again, like you mentioned, starting with the background of the Old Testament and John the baptizer coming, of Jesus is coming to fulfill all of these hopes that the people had of the anointed one, of the Messiah who was going to come. He's not going to do it in the ways they expect. We'll talk about that more as we go. 
But it's just really interesting to see how Jesus begins his ministry is not maybe what we would have expected. He's in a backwoods area of Galilee. He's going to spend most of his time teaching and preaching in an area far away from Jerusalem um, and where you'd expect the king to do most of his work in the the capital. Um, But Jesus uh, begins by calling these common fishermen, um, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, who leave behind their work, and their family to follow Jesus. And so we're asked, left with the question, you know, what would cause people to just leave all the, the normal life in order to follow this man? Which, as a side note, I don't believe this is the first time they ever met Jesus. We, knew, we know from uh, John's gospel that um, several of these guys were already disciples of John the baptizer, and he was the one pointing to Jesus saying, Behold the Lamb of God. And so they're not just super gullible people who are like, oh, look, a guy who said, follow me. Well, just follow him. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they knew enough about Jesus to know we can trust this guy and follow him. But one of the things we learn after these guys leave everything to follow Jesus is it starts to get into why Jesus is worth leaving everything behind to, to follow. And it starts off with a story where they're in Capernaum in the synagogue. He's teaching. And it tells us, this is in Mark one twenty two that they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And that idea is going to carry through all the way really into chapter 2, where Jesus is not like the other rabbis, scribes, or teachers that are around. Jesus has an authority that is different from what everyone else has. And namely, that is his ability to cast out demons and to heal the sick and to cleanse a leper, and to make a man walk. And Jesus' teaching is often coupled with those miracles to only reinforce his teaching as being from God himself. Yeah, they're amazed in verse 27. They says, what is this? A new teaching with authority. Right. Uh, He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So they're just blown away by the ability that Jesus has and that makes them listen more closely to the message he's bringing. Because anybody can show up and say, hey, I'm from God. Listen to me. I'm a prophet. But he, he, he can back it up and say, here's how you know I'm from God. Nobody can do this unless God is with them. And so Jesus has power over sicknesses. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. Um, and uh, he cleanses a leper by touching him, which is such a powerful story uh, when you think about normally if you touch a leper— the uncleanness goes to you and not vice versa. But when Jesus touches the leper, the cleanness goes from Jesus to the leper. He's, he's healed. And he has power even to forgive sins as we get into chapter yeah. 2. And they question in their hearts. They're like, who is this? He has power to forgive sins. Like, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus does something that they can see, healing a lame man, to show that he can do what they can't see, uh, forgiving sins. And so these miracles that Jesus does that shows his authority is kind of bookended with Peter, James, and John, and Andrew following Jesus, with now, in Mark two fourteen, uh, a man named Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and Jesus calling him to follow him, and he gets up and follows him, and that is who we know as Matthew that we talked about last week. And it kind of gives way to a really cool story that a lot of people are familiar with, where Jesus is like eating with sinners and tax collectors. And you see the Pharisees at this point really starting to get on Jesus' case. 
uh, not only about that, but about a, a litany of other things as well. And Jesus will give the, the classic, it is not those who are sick that need the physician, or excuse me, <laughs> I said that wrong. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And that really kind of sets the stage for the type of people Jesus is going to be seeking for the rest of the Gospel of Mark. Are those who aren't self-righteous and think that they don't need Jesus, but it's going to be those who have humbled themselves and know that they need God in their lives, mm-hmm. and that's who Jesus is going to go after. And the Pharisees are just going to stay on top of Jesus about that the whole time. That's right. And as you're reading any of the Gospels, pay attention to the kinds of people that respond to Jesus and the kinds of people that reject Jesus. Because it's not who you would necessarily expect. It's not who they would necessarily have expected. And so watch that as you go through. But here here we have Jesus questioned, particularly by the scribes and Pharisees. The first question is, like you mentioned, why is he eating with sinners? Um, And then the second question is, why aren't your disciples fasting? And Jesus responds with some parables about that. It's not the right time to fast. And then there's this question about, why are you eating on the Sabbath? Why are you doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath day? Which, of course, they weren't actually breaking the Sabbath. And that goes right into chapter 3, where there's another Sabbath episode where Jesus asks them a question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And so they're kind of questioning Jesus in these accounts that are put together. Again, anytime you're reading the Gospels, always watch for patterns like that Mm -hmm. uh, and see how Mark is arranging these stories to emphasize something about Jesus or to emphasize something about the people around Jesus. That's right. And here we see their lack of faith, just leading them to question and nitpick everything Jesus is doing. And Jesus gives very reasonable and helpful answers to who he is and why he's doing this. He's Lord of the Sabbath. Um, And he heals this man. He's grieved at their hardness of heart. That's something you're going to see over and over again in the Gospels is the hardness of people's hearts. Yes. The other thing Mark does that I think is really good is he gives us these little progress reports. Although he is going at such a fast pace, he's trying to get us to realize just how large this ministry of Jesus grew. In 3, 7, he says, Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea and from Jerusalem and from Idumea, beyond the Jordan, the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, a great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. Um, And I realize this is an audio podcast, so we're not able to pull up a map for you to see. But specifically, those cities of Tyre and Sidon were several, several miles to the northwest of where Jesus predominantly was. And the word of Jesus is getting out all the way to there as well. So Jesus is growing quite popular at this point. And it's at that point that Mark informs us that Jesus summons um, those who he wanted. I think it's kind of cool that it phrases that way. And they come to him, and he appoints 12 of them so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. That's exactly what Jesus had been doing. Jesus had been preaching but also doing miracles. And he gives 12 men the authority to do this as well. And so James, or excuse me, um, Mark goes on to list who that is, Simon, uh, who he gives the name Peter, um, James, the son of Zebedee, uh, John, the brother of James. Uh, they had that fun little nickname, Sons of Thunder, Sons of Thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and then, of course, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And so now the story is going to shift from not only what Jesus is doing, but also what he's trying to do to prepare these guys for the ministry that they're going to be doing as well. Yeah. 
And there's kind of one more question to Jesus' authority at the end of this section, at the end of chapter 3, where his family comes and thinks he's gone crazy. And people are accusing him of casting out demons by the power of Satan, Beelzebub, basically. And Jesus responds very strongly to that um, and responds about, you know, his family coming to take him away, basically, by saying, hey, the people who are really my family are the people who hear the word of God and, and do it. Um, which leads really well into chapter 4, where Mark has a collection of Jesus's parables for us, um, kind of like Matthew 13, that uh, second big sermon in Matthew, uh, or I guess third big sermon was the kingdom parables. Mark has a collection of parables in chapter 4 that uh, follow fairly closely uh, with the, what Matthew recorded as well, with the parable of the sower and various parables about the kingdom, and especially the kingdom spreading and growing, um, sometimes in ways that we don't even see or understand. It's like a farmer, you know, plants a seed at night and goes to sleep and he wakes up and, oh, it's growing. I don't know how it happened, but here it is. And, and that's often the way the kingdom grows in our own lives and the lives of others is uh, we just plant water and God gives the increase. And um, we see Jesus speaking frequently with parables. Uh, they're kind of collected for us in one chapter here, but Jesus used parables all the time. At the end of this section, in Mark 4, verse 33, he says, With many such parables he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. Um, so he's frequently using um, the idea of parables uh, to, to teach and to get people's attention and to help them remember. Because um, they didn't have Bibles, New Testaments at this point, uh, to be able to just, oh, yeah, what did he say about that? So these parables would have really helped them remember what he's teaching. Yeah. The next thing that Mark does, this is starting in chapter 4, verse 35, um, with the story of Jesus walking on the water. He will talk about the reaction that's pretty common for people to have whenever they encounter Jesus, especially with him doing some kind of miraculous gift. And that would be the reaction of fear. Many times they would be afraid. So in Mark four thirty-five and following, the example that's given to us is when the disciples are out on a boat on the sea, and it says that there was a fierce gale of wind that arose. The waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. And Jesus is asleep. He's in the boat sleeping. And they go and wake him up and they say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And Jesus gets up, rebukes the wind, and says to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he turned and said to his disciples, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They're starting to learn that Jesus is more than just a really good teacher that was given some kind of authority to do miracles. But his authority is much higher than that. And I think the disciples are having a hard time coping with that and understanding exactly what that means for them and what that means for their ministry with Jesus now. And they're afraid of that. And that narrative carries right into the next chapter. Yeah. I also just think it's interesting that uh, like, that little record of what happened ends with a question. It doesn't answer it. We're almost getting to experience Jesus just like they did. Like, here's what happened. And they were wondering, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And then it just moves on to the next story because we're getting to experience Jesus for ourselves through the word. 
and we're having to grapple with the same questions. Who is this? And so we keep reading, and uh, this theme of fear and faith just carries us all the way through chapter 5. Almost every story has some element of fear in it, where he's healing the man who had a bunch of demons in the beginning of chapter 5. But when the people come and see him healed, they're afraid, and they send Jesus away, which is a really interesting uh, you know, reaction to Jesus. Uh, he comes, and there's a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, whose daughter is at the point of death. He pleads with Jesus. He's afraid. And on the way there, there's a woman who wants to be healed, but is kind of afraid to do it publicly. So she just touches Jesus' garment, and she's healed. But then she has to come and confess. And she's terrified of that. And then Jairus, his daughter, he gets word that his daughter's dead, and he thinks it's all over. And Jesus says, do not fear, only believe, verse 35. And so you just see this theme of fear and faith being woven through here, that when we have faith in Jesus, or we trust in him, I like that, that word for it, um, it's so, so important to see how Jesus helps these different people with their doubts and fears overcome them to see who he is and have reasons for believing in him and leaving their fear behind. So this is one of my favorite sections of Mark to kind of go through. And as just a side note, assuming this is John Mark who's writing, um, he may have struggled with fear himself. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he, you know, left Paul and Silas on the first journey and maybe because he was afraid and went home. And so I wonder if by the time he's writing this, he's also writing some things that he needed to hear <laughs> as mm-hmm. far as, yeah, Jesus helps people overcome fear. Or, and, some, or some things the apostles told, told him to help him get over his fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Um, and so Jesus in chapter 6 will actually go home uh, to his hometown. Uh, we know that to have been Nazareth. And he goes to the local synagogue where he would have grown up going to synagogue and he starts doing some teaching. And there were a lot of people who were astonished by this. I mean, they said things like, where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these were performed by his hands. But they don't humble themselves and go, oh, great, we need to follow him. What they say is, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and and Judas and Simon are not his, his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Instead of humbling themselves before Jesus, they can't get past that they knew who Jesus was when he grew up. And Jesus will go on to say that a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. So even many of the people that Jesus grew up around and Jesus would have known well, they had a heart of disbelief even in the face of Jesus' miracles and teaching that was clearly from God. And there will be a lot of people who read this gospel um, who are going to be confronted with who Jesus is and yet will still outright deny him and not believe him for who he is and what he did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and these next two chapters, 6 and 7, are filled with lots of different responses to Jesus. Um, uh, He's going to send out his 12 apostles and there's going to be mixed reviews that they get. Um, and he tells them to be prepared for that. Um, John the baptizer had been put in prison, and Herod had had him put to death, actually. And we get the backstory on that in this chapter. But what's interesting is Herod was afraid uh, that it was Je- it was John come back from the dead. Like yeah. That's who Jesus was, because he's got a guilty conscience. And so there's just 
really interesting different responses to Jesus here. Um, Jesus feeds 5,000 people with just a few loaves and fish. And they're like, wow, you know, this is incredible. But then that later that night, he walks on the water and they're like, oh, it's a ghost. You know, what's going on? And at the end of that section, I think it's very interesting um, that once Jesus stills the sea, gets in the boat with them, it says in Mark 6, verse 51 and 52, and he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And so as we're reading through these accounts, what Mark will sometimes do is he will be connecting these stories for us and say like, they should have learned something about Jesus when he fed 5,000 that would have helped them out when he was walking on the water. Yeah. Um, that they need to be learning the nature of who Jesus is and coming to trust him, even when he yeah. does new things that they haven't seen yet. And what Stephen just described is the exact steps to faith. You take the past experience of what Jesus did or what God did when he delivered you, and you apply it to the next hard thing that's going to happen. And that's how you build your trust and your faith in God. And the disciples are starting to learn that, and they're going to have a lot of ups and downs as that happens. Um, it moves us into chapter 7, where Jesus is questioned yet again. And this is a section we referenced earlier. But specifically, he's questioned about some traditions that a lot of the Pharisees were following on how they would, like, wash their hands before they would eat a meal. And you hear that and you say, well, yeah, people should wash their hands before they eat a meal. They had like a specific routine on how that was to happen to ensure it happened in the most effective way so that you would be ceremonially clean um, and clean before you would eat a meal so that you wouldn't defile yourself. But Jesus will use that as an opportunity to point out blatant hypocrisy on part of the Pharisees. And we talked about last week how the Gospel of Matthew highlights more of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, but Mark just spends a little bit of time on that. And Jesus will call them out for setting aside the commandments of God in order to keep traditions. And he uses the commandment of, that God gives to honor their father and mother as an example. Um, it would appear, in what Jesus points out to them, is that they had given up the responsibility of taking care of their parents because they had a certain amount of money set aside for Corbin, or that is to say, given to God. And so they would quickly shirk the responsibility to take care of their mom and dad because of some other tradition that they're holding to. And so now they've started putting their traditions ahead of the commandments of God. And obviously Jesus is not okay with that. And it's a really challenging section for us as well. Are there traditions that we follow, whether it be in our churches or whether it be in our families, that are actually sidestepping or overstepping what the commandments of God say. And so if that is the case, we need to stop doing that. Jesus was very clear about that. Yeah, and this is just continuing, like, different responses to Jesus. Oh, he doesn't fit in our mold. It doesn't fit our traditions is just another response. Um, and again, the people that respond to Jesus, later in chapter 7, there's this Gentile woman, a Canaanite woman, whose daughter has an unclean spirit, and she begs with Jesus to help her, and he treats her in a really strange way, um, kind of like the Jews would have normally treated Gentiles, and yet she's persistent, and we see her faith through the trial that she goes through, and she comes through that and is healed, uh, her daughter is healed, um, and then Jesus heals a deaf man at the end of the chapter, which is all kind of unusual because he, uh, 
you know, spits and puts his fingers in his ears. And there's some interesting things, which is basically sign language uh, to show this uh, uh, deaf and uh, this apparently also a mute man, or at least it's a speech impediment. So Jesus, this section ends with just Jesus reaching out to the outcasts. That's something we always see Jesus doing, you know, a friend of tax collectors and sinners um, and the, the Gentiles and the mute and the deaf. And it's amazing to see the compassion of Jesus through these different responses. And those who reject him are often the most religious and those who accept him are often the most humble of people. Yep. So in chapter eight, we see what we think at first was a typo. Mark accidentally records the same story, but we learn, no, it happens twice. Jesus feeds 4,000 this time, which I think is really cool. And it's almost like a carbon copy situation where Jesus like has the 12 do the serving and he just keeps multiplying the bread and the fish and they have leftovers. Everyone is satisfied. And then everyone gets in a boat and they leave and they come to Dalmanutha. And it's just a really quick story that he feeds the 4,000. But the Pharisees come out and argue with Jesus, asking for a sign from heaven. And Jesus is sighing deeply in his spirit. Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. He leaves them. They get back in the boat and they leave. But then Mark tells us that the disciples realize that they forgot to take all those leftovers. (laughs) And they've only got one loaf in the boat with them. And Jesus is not thinking about bread if you could believe that. (laughs) He's just thinking about this exchange he had with the Pharisees, and he's using it as a teaching opportunity. And he says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. But the disciples think that Jesus is saying that because they forgot to bring bread. And Jesus naturally is irritated with them. That is very clearly not his focus. And the Gospel of John does this more, but you see it in the Gospel of Mark some too, where you will see the disciples thinking on a physical level when they really need to be thinking on a spiritual level. Mm -hmm. And Jesus is, in so many words, will try to point that out to them, that you guys are all worried about the bread, but you didn't learn the thing you should have learned from the bread. So what? You got one loaf in the boat with you. If I just multiplied the bread for the 5,000 and the 4,000, why wouldn't I be able to do that here too? Why are you so worried about that? And it ends, that whole exchange ends with a question, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. In verse 21, he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? And maybe at this point in the gospel, Mark, we're also reading it and we're going, I don't know if I understand either. I don't know if I understand what I'm supposed to know about Jesus yet. Mm -hmm. And that's when this miracle comes that is exclusive to Mark at what I think is the climax of the book and the, the, the perfect timing for it. Yeah, and it's really unusual when you first read it. Jesus heals a blind man, but he does it in an odd way. He does it in two stages where he heals him partially, and he sees men like trees walking, and then he heals him the rest of the way where he can see clearly and it's obvious that Jesus didn't make a mistake. He said, oh, sorry, messed that one up. Let me finish the job. No, he's making a point to the blind man, but also really to the people around him, his disciples, that they're not seeing him clearly. Maybe they think they are, but that's been the case with the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. They're not really understanding, and so they're not seeing, they're seeing some things about Jesus, but they're not seeing him fully clearly yet, like this blind man who was partially healed. 
And the same thing happens right after this miracle of Jesus healing the blind man in two stages. Um, he, uh, G- Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, which is wonderful. But then immediately after that, Jesus says he's going to die. And Peter pulls him aside and rebukes him. And then Jesus rebukes Peter, get behind me, Satan. And so even Peter, he sees Jesus a little more clearly than the others, but still not clearly enough. And then uh, Jesus has kind of this time out with his disciples like, hey, guys, listen, we got to talk about what it means to follow me. You have to take up your cross and follow me. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Mm -hmm. Um, So Jesus is, is really clarifying. This is what it means to follow me. It's not what you think. You might think you have the idea, but this is really... Um, not uh, what it fully means to to follow me. So in chapter 9, if you think you know who Jesus is at this point, just hang on to your hats for a second because we're about to learn even more about who Jesus is. And this is, we talked about this last week in Matthew's Gospel, obviously, but it's the Transfiguration where they will go up on this mountain. Uh, Jesus will take Peter, James, and John with him. And he's metamorphosized, as we talked about last week. Transfigured transfigured before them. Elijah and Moses are there. This is the one, I think this is cool, where Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. So Mark's gospel kind of includes this note of, yeah, this guy didn't know what to say, and so he's just saying something. And uh, one of those moments where it's like, if you don't know what to say, don't say anything at all. That's right. (laughs) Just be glad you're there. But this voice comes from heaven. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. That's the big thing that they're supposed to take away from this, that Jesus is more important and he's, his word is, is far better than Moses or Elijah, the law and the prophets. And so you need to prioritize knowing who he is. And so God, in a way, intervenes here to help them understand exactly who Jesus is. And they come down from the mountain, and uh, he tells them not to tell anyone about this until he's been risen from the dead. And they have this little discussion about who Elijah is. And we talked about that last week, how it's John the Baptist. But they come down the mountain and there has been a failed exorcism. There has been these, this man who has brought his son to the disciples and they have not been able to cast out this demon. And Jesus will rebuke the disciples in front of everybody for their lack of faith. And Jesus will point out to them later after they ask why they couldn't cast it out um, that this kind can only come out by prayer. And I don't believe it was that there was some kind of ultra uh, super demon that Jesus forgot to give them the rule book on. (laughs) But I think the idea is that they've started relying on themselves for these casting out of demons and they got to remember to pray to God that the power is in him. And so there's going to be a bit of a reset button with the disciples here as Jesus tries to get them to understand. And it's perfect timing for Jesus for the second time to tell them that he is going to suffer and that he's going to be delivered into the hands of men and that they're going to kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. But 
they did not understand the statement and they were afraid to ask him because right. last time someone asked him about this, uh, Jesus called them Satan. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> they, uh, they kind of hush about it this time. Yeah, and this is a perfect time for another timeout conversation that Jesus has with his disciples about who's really the greatest. You know, he asked them what they were talking about and they're quiet. We all know that silence if you're parents. Um, and so Jesus, there's several accounts following this that really deal with greatness in the kingdom. Um, John gets mad because someone's not following them, but they're casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And Jesus is like, hey, if they're not against us, they're for us. Don't, don't stop him. Um, he talk, Jesus talks about don't cause these little ones to sin, uh, which may tie with what John was trying to do and being territorial about Jesus, thinking that they were the only ones really with access to Jesus. Um, in chapter 10, we continue to see it where some of the people who should have known better are trying to get Jesus on uh, the law of divorce and marriage. It's very important teaching then and now. Um, but Jesus answers them well by going back to the beginning and saying, hey, you should know this. What does the law say? And um, they're kind of put in their place by Jesus' response. It's followed immediately by them trying to bring children to Jesus and the disciples are like, ah, get him away. I think maybe the idea is, oh, Jesus, you don't have time for these children. He's like, no, this is the kind of people that if you don't receive the kingdom of God, like one of these children, you're not going to enter at all. And then a famous story where there's a, a rich young man who, who's outwardly very holy and, and, and keeping the commandments. Um, he runs up to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to get eternal life? And Jesus basically tells him, okay, you're keeping the commandments, but you need to give up everything and uh, give to the poor and follow me. And he goes away sorrowful. And then there's this discussion about riches and how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. But that's not where greatness is. It's not in being rich. It's not in just keeping commandments that you already wanted to, but it's actually giving everything to Jesus. That's really what it means to be a disciple. And um, there's going to be those moments for all of us mm -hmm. where we kind of the rubber meets the road and we're asked, okay, am I willing to give this up? Right. If it really meant doing that to serve Jesus. And uh, we learn where this young man's heart is when he's faced with that choice in his life. Yep. This section kind of ends with Jesus for the third and final time talking about the fact that he is going to suffer and die. Um, if you're ever wanting to memorize those three places in Mark, it's really easy to do. Mark 831. Mark 9.31 and Mark 10.32 are the three places where just, Jesus... Just missed it by one verse. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. But um, Jesus actually gets more specific in this third and final time by mentioning uh, in verse 34 that they will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And then three days later he will rise again. And so he gets even more specific about like the kind of physical stuff that's going to happen to him in the process. But James and John, uh, specifically their mom, as Mark's gospel records it, will come up to them and, um, or is it, did I get it confused there? James and John come up in verse 35 and said to Jesus, teacher, we want you to do whatever you ask, or whatever we ask of you. And Jesus, of course, answers that question with the question, what, what is it? And they say, we want to sit on your right and on your left in your glory. And Jesus will say to them, you don't know what you're asking. And first off, that's not mine to give. And he will specifically say, the cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism, baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right and left, that is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. 
the suffering that Jesus is going through isn't just for anybody. There is a sense in which these disciples will suffer and go on to suffer, and Jesus has already warned them about that. But the kind of suffering Jesus is going through is the cup for him to drink. But as James and John have been gunning for this higher position in Jesus' glory, the other ten heard them say that, and they're pretty upset about it. And this is where Jesus has that little time out, another one with them, where he'll point out that, look, everyone else in the world acts the way you guys are acting. The Gentiles, they love to lord it over people that they're in charge. But it is not this way among you. Uh, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. They can't act that way. And as he's trying to prepare them for his death, but also for this ministry that they're going to go on after he departs, they've got to understand that living a life of being his disciple isn't about serving yourself, but it's about serving other people. And if they can't get that right now, it's going to be a rough road for them. And so it's, I think it's one of the perfect timeout moments in the Gospel of Mark to slow down, if you're following along with us, and really think about that. Are you a servant? Do you serve other people? Are you putting your life ahead of others? Do you need to fix that? Um, and so it's a beautiful little section for us to reflect on for each of us. Mm-hmm. And then the final uh, account in chapter 10 is, again, of the humble, these blind men, uh, blind man Bartimaeus, um, who's healed by Jesus. And it's interesting that after James and John say, hey, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask, um, Jesus actually offers to Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? And so there's very interesting back and forth in this whole chapter of the exalted being humbled and the humbled being exalted. But all of this really builds up to a final showdown that takes us through chapters 11 through 13 when Jesus finally comes to Jerusalem. And there's the triumphal entry where he fulfills Old Testament prophecy of being the coming king riding on a donkey. There's, uh, we've actually not mentioned this at this point, have we? The Mark sandwiches uh, where uh, Mark will start one story then switch to another story, and then come back and finish the first story. We saw one in Mark 5. Um, yeah, with the healing of Jairus' daughter, yeah. but then the woman touching Jesus' garment in yeah. the middle of that story. Yeah, This is another one where Jesus curses the fig tree, then he cleanses the temple, and then he comes back to the fig tree. And so it's very interesting seeing here that Jesus is coming to his city expecting to find good fruit from his people, but there's no fruit. Yeah, it's a robber's den is what Yeah, that's right. Yep. Instead, he has to clean house. Yeah. And so the fig tree and the temple cleansing go together. Uh, Mark is connecting those stories when he does what we call a Mark sandwich. Yeah. Um, it's kind of cool literary technique that gets us to connect things. And then begins a series of parables and confrontations that Jesus will have with the Jewish people. That they come to him saying, who gave you authority to do these things? Come in here and cleanse the temple. And Jesus says, well, you answer me. Is the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they're like, oh... We don't know. Yeah. And they're being political about it because they're afraid. Um, There's the theme of fear again. But um, he's finding bad fruit in his city. Yeah. And so he's going to tell them in no uncertain terms that judgment is coming. Yeah, that's exactly right. And he kind of starts that whole parable, or it starts that whole idea of judgment coming with a parable of the vineyard and um, where essentially it's boiled down to God being the owner of the vineyard and Jesus is the one that comes in finally to collect some of the profit from it, and instead they kill the son of the vineyard 
um, owner. And so Jesus is clearly using this parable against them. And they realize it, and they're not happy about that. The Pharisees and Herodians come on the scene. They ask Jesus about taxes, and like they're trying to pin him because if he says to pay taxes, then he's going to make the Pharisees mad. But if he says not to pay taxes, then he's going to make the Herodians mad. And Jesus, of course, answers with, um, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And so very perfectly answers that. The Sadducees have a really silly hypothetical question about the resurrection, and Jesus will explain to them that they don't understand the scriptures nor the power of God and point out that God is the God of the living. Um, and so he answers their question, and it ends with a scribe asking what commandment is the foremost of all. And Jesus will say, uh, the foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Love him with the Love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the second is unto it like this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater commandment than these. And that is something I, I wish we could spend more time on, but we, we can't. And again, all of this is expounded in 20-some-odd episodes in season one if you ever want to go back and listen to that. But that really is the boiled-down version of what God's will for us is, is to love him with all of our heart and love our neighbor as ourselves. Mm-hmm. And then Jesus poses a question to them. Uh, who, whose son is the Christ? How can he be David's son and yet David's Lord? And he quotes Psalm 110, some very interesting Old Testament things going on. But he ends chapter 12 and, and gets into chapter 13 with a scathing rebuke of the religious leaders, that they don't care about justice and mercy. They're oppressing the widows. There's this poor widow. All she has left to give is two uh, coins. And then in chapter 13, it's the one kind of prophetic section of Mark where Jesus has the power to know the future and to see what's going to happen. And this is a reaction to the corruption of the Jewish people, that the, the, their city is going to be destroyed and there's going to be signs they can watch for to know when the armies are going to come in. Now, I do think that he transitions by the end of this account to talk about the end of the world um, in the last few verses, verses 32 through 37. But the vast majority of this, I believe, is talking about the historical event of the destruction of Jerusalem that happens in the year 70 A.D. And um, it's a reaction, again, to he's come to his vineyard and there's no fruit. And so it's going to be destroyed and there's going to be, in the book of Acts, the gospel is going to go out, not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles and people that will actually bear fruit and respond to Jesus. And although the gospel of Mark has its urgency and it has kind of flown through a lot of stories at this point. The last three chapters of Mark slow down to talk about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and rightfully so. I mean, that's what it's all pointing us toward. And uh, it starts with um, the plot against Jesus on how they're going to seize him um, and kill him, and they're like, oh, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot with the people. And Jesus, like in the other gospel accounts, is anointed by this woman, um, for his burial. And Mark actually gives us this cool little note. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, that this woman who, is, uh, who has done this will also be spoken of in memory of her. And so th- this story of her breaking this vial and putting it on Jesus is recorded for us to this day. Mm-hmm. And so many of these stories leading up to Jesus' death and betrayal are getting us prepared I mean, Jesus has told them multiple times already, I'm going to die. Um, but he institutes the Lord's Supper, uh, takes the last Passover with his disciples, and gives them a way to remember him, which they don't understand at this point, but they'll understand later. 
And then begins the greatest trials of Jesus' whole life, um, where he prays fervently in the garden to let this cup pass from him and pleads with the Father. Um, It seems to be that Jesus is saying, if there's some other way to do this rather than what I have to go through, let that be. But he submits his will and says, yet not what I will, but what you will. And the disciples are sleeping during that. Uh, They're not helping him like they should. And then as one of the twelve, Judas, comes and betrays Jesus with a sign of affection, with a kiss. And then uh, this is where we have that one thing that's unique to Mark, where even a young man runs away uh, naked. He'd rather be seen naked than seen with Jesus, I think Mm -hmm. is the idea, which might be Mark himself. Again, we're not sure. But the point of all of that is to see that at the hour of his greatest need, all of his closest friends and followers forsake him and run away in fear. And Jesus has to face these trials without any other human helper. Of course, the Father is with him, but it's such a dark hour for Jesus as we get into these last hours of his life. And so Jesus is led away first to be tried by the Jews, and they're, of course, condemning him to death. That's their conclusion in verse 64. And they conclude that with spitting on him as he's blindfolded, beating him with their fist and mocking him, saying, prophesy. And the officers are slapping him around. And that's contrasted immediately with Peter denying Jesus. Um, that the, the servant girl comes up and says, you know, you were with Jesus. And he says, no, I wasn't. And it kind of compiles on itself to the point where he, by the third time he's asked, curses and swears and said, I don't know this man you're talking about. And the rooster crows. And Peter remembers how Jesus had made the remark to him, before rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. Mm-hmm. And then Jesus is sent uh, from the Jewish tr- uh, court to now the Roman court um, so that he can be tried to be crucified. And Pilate realizes what's happening here. He understands why they've done this. He understands it was because of envy. But the Jews are going to end up tying his hands um, and really forcing his hand to have them have Jesus crucified by pointing out that he made himself out to be a king. And so any man that makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. And so um, Pilate will allow it to happen after a little bit of deliberation. And Jesus is brought out um, to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, and is there crucified. And again, it's amazing the restraint of the biblical authors in talking about the death of Jesus. Their audience would have known what Roman crucifixion was like, but their focus is really more on the Old Testament fulfillment, on the spiritual significance of what is happening in this moment and of all the prophecies that have led up to it because it seems so chaotic and senseless as it's happening. And yet all the gospel writers take time to bring out different aspects of how Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, and then when he dies, the, the veil of the temple is torn in two uh, from top to bottom. And the centurion, a, a Gentile, is the first person to say, surely, or truly, this man was the Son of God, which is how the gospel of Mark began, was with, this is the good news of Jesus, the Son of God, And now the first person to really see it is a Roman guard who has been part of this crucifixion process for Jesus. And so Jesus is buried and is there for three days. 
and it seems like everything has come to an end. But it doesn't end that way, does it? Um, chapter 16 and verse 1 says, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? They looked up, saw the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, He is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. They went out, fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So, as is typical for all the gospel accounts, the story picks back up on the first day of the week when Jesus rises, just like he said that he would. He did not stay in the grave forever, but he rose, giving us hope for all of us as well, that one day we will rise from the dead. And that, of course, is what all of this is pointing to. And so Mark's gospel records that they, uh, they left, obviously, because they were so afraid. And Jesus will meet back up with his disciples. And he will, in fact, rebuke them a little bit for not believing the women's initial report. But Jesus will tell them that they also need to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and, shall be, and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Um, and so Jesus gives them this commission to, to go out and make disciples and to be baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as we talked about at the end of Matthew's Gospel as well. Mm-hmm. And, and so this sets up uh, you know, what we'll get into a little bit later in the book of Acts and the continuation of what Jesus did. But it's, it's so amazing that God has preserved these accounts for us and given us everything we need to know about Jesus. And even in Mark, who's the most concise of the Gospels, how much there is to meditate on and to read this over and over again. If you've read the Gospels and feel like, wow, I just have a hard time understanding this, keep reading. These are not meant to be understood in one go, but they're meant to be read for a lifetime. And so don't be discouraged if it's hard to get it the first time around. Keep coming back, listening through it, study um, over and over again. And these things become more and more clear because God has given us everything we need uh, to know about Jesus in, yep. these, in these accounts. Amen. So Lord willing, next week, we're, we're going to go out of order. We're not going to go to Luke, but we're actually going to go to the Gospel of John. And uh, there's a reason why we're doing that. We're doing our best to pair Luke and Acts together just because they naturally uh, follow one another because they're written by the same person. But John's Gospel is going to be a completely different pace than Matthew and Mark was. He's, he's telling different stories. He's got a different purpose, a different angle. And uh, I'm really excited to talk about that with Stephen next week. Yeah. Thank you all for listening today. If you're enjoying what you hear on the pod, please subscribe or leave us a rating or a review. If you'd like to study the Bible with us in person or online, uh, reach out to us, 717-585-0949, or email us at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Or for more information on group studies or other things, check out capitalcitychristians.com.